You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. Okay, this episode is brought to you by Mitchell's Nutrition and Bliss Probiotics. Two really cool companies making awesome products that I use and I'm really stoked that they have jumped on board to support the podcast. So first up, let's chat about Mitchell's. These guys make an incredible bone broth protein powder. It's a protein powder that I use pretty much every single day. It's a very high quality protein powder. It's you know got a full amino acid profile. It tastes absolutely delicious. It doesn't taste like bone broth. Um, it tastes like a vanilla milkshake. That's the vanilla one that I have. If you're interested to learn more about this, then check the show notes where you can find the links to Mitchell's. Secondly, let's chat about Bliss. Bliss probiotics make a lozenge that goes in your mouth that is probiotic. And this is to support your microbiome in your mouth and your throat, which is of course the gateway to your body. So it's a very effective way to support your immune system. All of their products are based on science. They make them in Dunedin. I've been using these products for a number of years. I recommend them very highly. And so if you're interested to learn more, have a look at the show notes and check the links there. And now let's get into the podcast. G'day, welcome to the podcast. Now, today's podcast was a, I mean, it was a biggie for me. I was very excited to interview Rob Wolf because Rob has been quite influential for me. He, I guess, you know, helped to pioneer the paleo movement globally. And he wrote a book called The Paleo Solution years ago. And I read that. And that's what really got me started on my paleo or whole foods approach to health and nutrition. So he's really influenced my life quite significantly. His interests have now kind of like grown more into longevity and health span kind of areas. And so we talk a lot about that today. We talk about nutrition for longevity, exercise for longevity, and some other things that can help to improve your health span. We also talk a bit about fasting and why that's maybe not all that it's cracked up to be. And we talk a bit about Element, which is his electrolyte supplements company, which I've actually been using for a bit over a year and I love the stuff. That is enough from me. Let's start listening to the podcast, which also has me, but it also has Rob, which makes it more exciting. So let's go. So the first thing I really want to know, Rob, is what is the most interesting or strangest thing that you've ever done for your health? You know, I thought and thought and thought about this, and I don't know if this is necessarily for my health, but I, I was a member of a Discovery Channel reality show called I Caveman. Oh, okay. It was uh, over 10 years ago, and the, the premise was they wanted some folks with a, a mix of like absolutely zero survival skills and then a few people with a, a varying degrees of survival skills to give you a kit that is basically consistent with a, a hunter-gatherer, you know, experience like uh, animal-made clothing, uh, some basic stone tools, and can you survive? We did that, and I we made these things called atlatls, which are hand-thrown dart or spears, and I ended up killing a 650-pound elk with a, a hand-thrown spear on day 10, but like I, I lost oh 20... God. 22 pounds during the process of this thing. And it was really interesting, but I, I don't know that that was specifically for my health, but I was picked because I was in this paleo diet genre. And like they had a guy that was a stone tools expert, Billy Berger, who's an amazing guy. And then I was kind of like the 
diet expert, you know, so I could comment on, yeah, hunter-gatherers did eat grubs or, you know, caught parasites from this, that, or the other. And so I, it, it was a, it was a very interesting show. It actually absolutely crushed me. Like the massive sleep deprivation, we basically starved the first 10 days. Like in, in the first 10 days, I ate a mouse, a bunch of snails, part of a fish and just ungodly amounts of just grass and green stuff. Cause that's all, all there was. It was uh 8,000 feet elevation in the mountains of Colorado in the spring. So they wanted it to look like glacial Europe. So there was still snow on the ground and everything. It was an absolute disaster from a survival perspective because it was really cold. There was absolutely no food there. Like all the animals were like 5,000 feet down the mountain at this time of year. And the, the folks that were consulting for the show, they were like, the Native Americans here would have never been at this altitude this time of year because there's literally nothing here, you know. And so it was it was interesting. But I, I, I when you sent me some of the questions ahead of time, I was thinking, I'm like, I don't know that I really got anything that interesting other than maybe the uh, the I caveman gig. That's I mean, that's pretty out there. What was that like killing that elk? I mean, that would be hard to do. Had you done any spear throwing or anything like that before? So I'm a coward and I knew that we were going to suffer on this thing. And so the two things that I spent a ton of time figuring out is how to make a fire with like a hand drill thing. And so on day one, uh, it it was a group effort, but I mainly was able to get the, the fire going, which funny enough pissed off the producers because they expected us to flail for a couple of days and just be freezing. And so the fact that we got the fire done on day one, they're like, oh, this is looking too easy for these guys. And so they did a bunch of other stuff to kind of kind of mess with us there. But um, I made an atlatl at home before the show. And I practiced like five hours a day with it because I'm a coward and I don't like to suffer. And so I wanted to prepare as much as I could going, going into this thing. But it was still, we didn't have the materials to put this stuff together until like day seven. So prior to this, it was just basically like trying to forage plants, maybe try to throw like some throwing sticks or some rocks at like small game. A number of the guys on the show went out trying to like get elk or bigger game with like just thrusting spears. And I'm like, this is never going to happen. Like it, it, it's just the advice that I had from some Navy SEALs that I, I knew and some other people that have been in, in these kind of reality shows are like, the first couple of days when you're still feeling good, everybody goes out with a bunch of piss and vinegar and and they just knacker themselves immediately, you know? Mm. And so I didn't do that. And I saved my energy for when we had the actual like tools to be able to actually get an elk. And then we had failed so much in the hunting leading up to this. This was like day 10 that most of the camera crew didn't go out, which was actually good. And what I convinced them to do was just give each one of us that was hunting a GoPro on our head. And then they set up their cameras about a mile, half a mile away, and just use these really, you know, long range kind of optics on that. So it actually gave us some room to be able to hunt. Whereas before this, you had like four or five dudes hunting, men and women hunting, and you had a camera crew of like four or five people. And it was an absolute disaster. Like it's so much noise, so much commotion. Like it was, it was never going to happen. And so again, I'm a little bit of a coward. And so I strategized. I'm like, I'm not going to go out there with only a thrusting spear. I'm not going to go out there with like five camera people for five 
hunters. And so I focused on like trying to find edible plants and small things. Like I found pounds of snails, but the thing is, is that the, the snails are mainly glass when you get right down to it, you know, their shell and there's a tiny, tiny little morsel of meat in it. So you just collect these snails off of trees like crazy and then we cook them by the fire and then you try to whittle out a little little chunk of you know meat out of it it was mainly something to keep you distracted i don't know that it, like i probably burned as many calories collecting them as i i did eating them but um the long and short is it yeah i mean it was a super challenging thing to get that elk and i i had two darts and the first one that i threw went long and then the second one got it got it in the neck and and then we were able to run it down and finish it from there yeah yeah, because I imagine that's what you'd have to do. It's quite hard to, well, I imagine it's be quite hard to get it in the right spot to actually take it down. With in a one shot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting. That's very unique. It doesn't surprise me about you, Rob, for some reason. <laughs> I, I mean, it kind of fits the whole serial killer kind of <laughs> It does, thing. it yeah. does. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me also because you're you're so knowledgeable in so many different areas of health and you're so well researched. And so it was actually quite hard to figure out what we were going to talk about today because I wanted to talk about so many different things. But one thing I do want to talk about is longevity. I feel as though a combination of a lot of your work and your research and interest has has kind of led you to the interest in longevity. And I feel like that's kind of naturally where you've found yourself, but also where we have as as a health community. And I want to know, get your thoughts on why you think that is. Like, why are we now focused on longevity or living or health span, living for as healthy as we can for as long as we can? Whereas, say, like five, 10 years ago, we would just focus more on health. Yeah. I mean, I'm 50 now. So, you know, people will say, oh, you're middle-aged. And I'm like, it's a long shot that I'm going to make it to a hundred. Like maybe I do, maybe, but I think once you realize that you most likely have more days behind you than in front of you, that's kind of a wake up call. I did diabetic wound care on my dad, who uh, was a pack a day smoker from the age of maybe 12, 13, something like that. He had a pretty heavy drinker. And I remember he developed type two diabetes poorly managed, certainly no diligent dietary changes. Meds helped a little bit, but not that much. But I remember when they took his, they started with his big toe because he had an ulcer, you know, diabetic ulcer, yeah. wouldn't heal. They took his toe and part of his foot then all of his foot then wow. part of the lower leg, then everything below the knee. And I remember my dad saying, well, Rob, I'm just going to let him take the foot. And I was like, dad, you're, you're acting like this is some sort of a deal with the universe where you're like, okay, you can take my leg and then I'm good. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. Like they're just going to keep whittling parts off of you. And he was just kind of like, eh, and my dad came from a very different era and he had a much more difficult life than I did. And, uh, as challenging as he was as a dad, he set me up for far more success than he was set up with. Like I, my, my dad had a, a very difficult life, but Having your child do diabetic wound care on, you know, parts of you that every four to six months, they're just kind of whittling chunks off. That was kind of a gut check for me. And I was like, there's no fucking way I'm exposing my kids to this. Like, I live in Montana. I will paint myself with honey and tie steaks to me and walk out in the woods and let the the bear and the, the mountain lions deal with me in, in quick order before I let my kids Deal with that. So a lot of this is just um, 
I really don't want to be a burden on my kids. I'm a dad. I have eight, eight and 10 year old daughters and I got into the game a little on the late side. And so I want to be as fit and active and on point as I can be to be as helpful and interactive with them as I can be. Hopefully I'd live to see some grandkids, you know, that would, that would be awesome and be a, a factor in their life. And, and I don't want to be a burden at all. I'm just not going to do that. So I'm either going to be super healthy and on point, or it's going to be a very quick end out in the woods where I, I return to the food cycle, you know, and that's it. So that's my personal kind of motivation for this stuff. And I think for most people, there's a sense of our, our own mortality and trying to, to get as much juice out of this life as, as we can. And then I remember talking to my mom and my mom had a lot of health problems too. And I said to her, do you hope you live to be a hundred? And my mom said, goodness, no. Like, and I was like, well, why? And she said, well, you would just feel so terrible. Mm. And I was like, well, if you didn't smoke and you maybe exercise once, well, maybe that, that wouldn't be a, a, a thing. And so I think it's, it's not that surprising to people that if somebody is diligent in like not spending every dollar they make of their paycheck and like they invest 10% of it, maybe half of it in a high risk and half of it in low risk activity. And they start doing that when they're 18, by the time they're 50, even if they, they have a modest income, they're probably sitting on a pretty damn good nest egg, you know, if they're just smart with investing in, in their financial health. And so I, I, it shouldn't be that surprising that investing in our, our health health, you know, our, our physical health and well-being and, and whatnot seems like it would turn some really remarkable dividends. And it's always interesting to me, regardless of what kind of like political affiliation somebody is or where somebody's come from, like whatever you want to do, if you're in good health, both physical, mental, kind of emotional, spiritual, all that stuff, you'd be a hell of a lot more effective at it than if you're you're struggling. And I still have health issues from the ulcerative colitis I had 23 years ago and everything. Like there's still things that I fiddle with and that I, I continue to try to improve, but it's way better than what it was. And it's way better than what it would have been had I not changed the things that I've changed and continue to just keep keep tenaciously like fiddling with things and trying to improve my my situation. Yeah. I mean what you said there, um, I can definitely relate to as well, just with I feel like it's since I've really since I've had kids. So just in the last like three years, I've really started thinking about it. Because I've been thinking about it from a point of view of like, I want to be a fit and active grandparent as well, you know? I think a few years ago, I would think about my health like, cool, I want to be healthy, you know, next year. I want to look good and be strong. You know, I have these little goals maybe of like, you know, next year or the year after that. And my foresight was so short. And now it's like, no, what I'm doing today, what I'm doing this week, I think that's going to impact how healthy and fit and active I am when I'm a grandparent and when I'm older than that. And so it's been this real mental shift for me. Hello, jumping in again, um, just a little moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Mitchell's Nutrition, and specifically their bone broth protein powder. Because if you want to up your protein intake, you want to nourish your gut and support your skin, muscles and joints in one easy and delicious protein powder, I reckon this is probably the one for you. Mitchell's Nutrition was born out of a search for ways to support the body's natural healing abilities and optimize daily performance. Their mission is to elevate the standard of mental and physical well-being of Kiwis so that they can keep doing the things they love for as long as possible. 
Their bone broth protein powder is dairy-free, gluten-free, legume and grain-free, low in sugar, and boasts a 100% natural occurring full amino acid profile. It's seriously a very high quality protein powder and I absolutely love it. Using a traditional slow cooking technique to extract the goodness from 100% grass-fed New Zealand beef bones before stirring in some natural flavor and monk fruit. That is all it is, there's nothing else, and I love that Mitchell's Nutrition has a very, uh, a very high commitment to their transparency. What you see is what you get. Now, being the first of its kind here in New Zealand, being a bone broth protein powder, you might be wondering what the taste is like, and I've got to say, it's the best tasting protein powder I've ever tasted. I have the vanilla one every day, and it tastes like a vanilla milkshake, without a word of a lie. So, if you're interested to learn more, check the show notes. Now back to the podcast. I want to know from your perspective, like if I said to you, hey Rob, if I want to live to be as old as I can, for as, you know, be as healthy as I can for as long as I can, what are some of the things that I should be considering or should start doing? Ordering them out, I think figuring out a way to sleep as well as we possibly can, which, you know, you're in the thick of it with young kids. And, and like before we started recording, um, it gets better. Like your sleep does improve. Yeah. It does get better. It makes me think a little bit from like a hunter-gatherer perspective, like most humans probably started having kids in their teens and 20s for sure. And I think back to when I was a teenager, it was like, oh yeah, like I could have stayed up all night. And then the next day you're like, oh, I feel kind of rough today, but dude, you'd motor through it. But you get 30, 40, 50 and you stay up and you're dealing with little kids and you're like, oh yeah, I <laughs> I get it. Like half of hunter-gatherers were dead by this point. <laughs> So I I, I totally get that. So like sleep is just this thing that um, my good friend, Kirk Parsley, who's a retired Navy SEAL and he's a physician. He took care of the the health concerns of the West Coast Navy SEALs for about eight years. He was the the dive physician there in Coronado. And um, he became a sleep expert because so much of what the SEALs deal with from a health perspective is disordered sleep. Like they do these deployments where they're awake all night, they sleep during the day, they use Ambien to go to sleep, even though they're not really asleep, they're just unconscious. And what the, the wheels just fall off the wagon on these guys. Like they're they're so tough, they're so resilient until um, several years of disordered sleep and altered circadian biology from like, you know, time zone shifting and all this stuff. And then they just explode. They come unraveled in this epic fashion. And, and Kirk makes this point that one of the biggest distinctions between youth and older age is that when we're young, let's say we do a workout, we, we go play a soccer match or something, and then we go, we have some damage to our body due to the wear and tear of like doing that soccer match and whatnot. And we go to bed and during sleep, we get into this deep restful sleep and we heal and we not just heal, but we become, we're better the next day than what we were the previous day because we super compensate. And right. this is like our teens into maybe our, our early to mid twenties. You literally wake up stronger. You're a better version of yourself than what you were before. Then somewhere around like mid twenties heading into thirties, it's like, if you just come back to zero, you're doing pretty good. Like if you just get back to where you were before, and then from 30s on, what we're really fighting against is like we come back a little bit less than what we were the day before. Like we don't fully heal. We don't fully recover. And to whatever degree you can shore up your sleep. And I, I think some people do really well with some melatonin, with some GABA, 
everybody does well to avoid alcohol near bedtime, to go to bed earlier, to practice all these good sleep hygiene, you know, habits. So I think sleep is just so huge. And just as an aside, I would be fascinated if I could go back in time and, you know, like AB testing where they do marketing, where they'll have one landing page and a different landing page and yep. see how it, it works. I would love to AB test my career. And on the one hand, we have this experience of me being a food guy, like the paleo kind of food guy. I would love to be the sleep guy and do everything that I've done, but orient it towards sleep yeah. because I could make the case hey, you need to exercise because you'll sleep better. You need a lower glycemic load diet because you will sleep better. You need to avoid immunogenic foods like gluten and dairy because you'll sleep better. And I just wonder how it would go because instead of assaulting people head on with like dietary change, if I was couching it all in terms of sleep, but then I did all the same stuff, but it was in, in, in terms of like trying to get people to improve their sleep, I just kind of wondered like, would I be 10x more effective or 10x less effective or, you know, mm. what, what would go on there? Yeah, interesting. I think you'd be far more effective. And you, and you just talked about how you think if people would sleep better, if they, you know, have a low glycemic index diet, you know, they'd sleep better. And if they exercise, they'd sleep better. But it's also the other way around. You know, if you sleep better, then you're, you're more likely to eat better. And if you sleep better, you're more likely to exercise. And, you know, it, it does underpin all of our health. Yeah. So, uh, you know, even though I'm like the food guy, I've been talking about sleep since 2001. There was a, a great book, Lights Out, Sleep, Sugar, and Survival. And it, it kind of takes an evolutionary biology look at sleep and circadian biology and whatnot. And it, it's still, I just think it's a phenomenal book. And then, you know, other factors here, some sort of a dietary intervention that is consistent with healthy aging. And I really think like a protein centric, even though that's really controversial, like you look at all of David Sinclair's work and Walter Longo, these guys are really into like low protein and, you know, a lot of fasting and everything. What I've noticed is some people who are much smarter than I am, but I'm not that smart of a person. Like I'm pretty tenacious, but what I have is a real, I think a very, very good operating system. I run everything that I think about through an evolutionary lens a thermodynamics lens, so like like energy flows and in, inputs outputs, like engineering and physics, and then economics, like basic resource allocation. And I think that that like you could have a very modest CPU ability, but you've got a superior operating system running on that thing when you you look at stuff like that. And so there's some people like Peter Atia and Rhonda Patrick that are very very smart, brilliant but they've tend to be very mechanistically down in the weeds and they have historically been much more in this kind of super into fasting, super into low protein diets and stuff like that. And they've shifted dramatically over the last couple of years. And I, for a long time, I've been saying, I think that this is barking up the wrong tree. And then right at the beginning of COVID, I had a talk and it's, it's available. If you remind me, I'll, I'll shoot you a link to it. That'd it's called longevity. Sure are, are we trying too hard? I dig into mTOR and insulin-like growth factor and all this stuff. And I, I make the case that these studies looking at protein restriction and calorie restriction and whatnot, what they're doing, interestingly, is they're comparing sick animals that eat a standard lab chow diet with animals that are restricted from overeating a poor diet. They do not compare them to a phenotypically optimized organism where looking at mice or, or whatever, 
Those mice should be in an enriched environment, sleeping well, and eating a species-appropriate diet, not lab chow diet. Because we know that just simply feeding these animals a lab chow diet, it makes them sick. Like this is just understood. So we're not comparing a healthy, optimized animal, you know, that is thriving, and then we restrict them. We're not comparing that. We're looking at overfeeding them and making them sick or feeding them the same crappy food but less of it so they don't get sick. And I think that if the little bit of compare and contrast that we've had with feeding an organism a species-appropriate diet, not overfeeding, but certainly not underfeeding also, I think that we would have really different results on that. And I think slowly, I don't make a lot of emphatic statements, but I, I really think I'm going to end up being proven right on this. I think that the David Sinclairs and the Walter Longos and whatnot they're going to find that they asked the question in the wrong way. They didn't think about the evolutionary biology implications of this stuff and start from a perspective of we should be comparing healthy, optimized animals with this dietary restriction kind of thing. So I think like two or three meals a day, about a gram of protein per pound of body weight, a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass, finding a glycemic load that works for you. Like I don't handle carbohydrates that well, so I tend to eat on the lower carb side of things. Something that's critical for folks to understand, and I talk about this in my second book, Wired to Eat, is that people who do well on a higher carb diet, they have a blood glucose response that looks like me eating a low carb diet. And that's something that hardly anybody talks about. My wife and I did an experiment where I would eat 50 grams of a particular carbohydrate like white rice or corn tortillas or something. She would eat it. Nikki's 30 pounds lighter than I am, but her blood sugar would top off at about 115 or 120. Mine would go to 190. It was nearly diabetic. It's bad for like advanced glycation in products. It's terrible for appetite control because I get a really a big delta, a big drop in my blood sugar. And then that makes me hungry and I want to go back and eat more. And so finding a way that we don't get these blood sugar excursions is the way that you, you don't overeat. It's a really primary driver on that stuff. And it can be really different from person to person. Yeah, it really can. I mean, I've worn a continuous blood glucose monitor before and have found that as well. Things that I didn't really think about that would spike my blood glucose really spiked it. And so outside of wearing a continuous blood glucose monitor, how can people tell if some foods are really spiking their blood glucose? Can they? Could you do genetic testing and would that show some sort of indication as to how you may tolerate certain foods? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So like I've I've run my stuff through 23andMe and 23andMe is very kind of missionary style, orthodox, like the dietary recommendations it makes is high carb, low fat, you know, sure, all that stuff. Yeah. I forget the name of the other outfit. They're based in the UK. Gosh, I can't believe I, I forgot the name of it, but I ran my my information through them and they came back recommending a low carb diet, like not more than about 10, maybe 15% of calories from carbohydrate, mainly low glycemic load carbohydrate. I don't know if they just knew who I was and they <laughs> information on the back end or, you know, I, I, I don't know. I've been generally super underwhelmed with genetic testing for a lot of, of stuff as it, you know, how it informs things because we have our genetics and then we have our gut microbiome and just our microbiome in general. And my God, the, the gut microbiome alone, you know, like I have the celiac gene, I definitely react negatively to gluten. But if I had the right type of 
gut bacteria that have the genes to code for proteins that are proleal endopeptidases. They break down the, the gluten proteins. I might be totally fine, you know, but I don't have those. So then it becomes this thing of like, well, we need the gut microbiome, then we need the, the genetics and it becomes so monumentally complex. Whereas if we just take a step back and just look at clinical stuff. And so like, I think a CGM is great. I think doing a finger prick test, you know, for, so in, in my, my second book, I have this thing, the seven day carb test, where I recommend testing some different carbohydrates. And it was before CGMs were as, as ubiquitous as they are now. So we just did some finger prick testing. Those are all really objective. And I think that that's valuable, but subjective stuff is just like, do you get fuzzy headed? Do you have any vision changes? Do you get hangry a couple of hours after eating, you know, where you get this kind of rebound hypoglycemia? So there are some subjective things like hunger, vision changes, gut issues that I think can help inform. Tiredness, I think, is another one. I definitely found that. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I think those things could be helpful. And again, uh, I think there's a little bit of interesting research that suggests something like a modified Atkins or just a peri-ketogenic diet might have some interesting longevity characteristics to it. Like there have been animal studies, but mice put on a ketogenic diet showed a 15% improvement in health span and total lifespan. And what was interesting is the health span and lifespan just basically ended up tracking perfectly together. Like uh, when their health span failed in these animals, like they, they died pretty immediately afterwards. And what was really interesting is that they were very physically fit into more advanced age, like their their grip strength okay. or their uh, time to failure while swimming. How do, and stuff how like do they, how do, they do their improved. grip strength? I'm imagining these little mice. They literally, they literally <laughs> just hang place. them on a wire and see when they fall off. Well, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, and again, like, I think that's interesting. I don't know that it, it makes the case to 100% like go like a ketogenic diet or modified Atkins. But if you like eating that way, I think that there's, you know, you could kind of say, okay, well, maybe, maybe I get a little bit of a, a boost from that. But there's kind of a, a reality that when we look around at centenarians, what they seem to be is fairly active, although not crazy active. They have great social connections. They usually drink a little bit of booze, but not a, a mountain of booze. Occasionally they're smokers, even intermittent smokers, which I think is interesting from the whole hormetic stress kind of perspective. And then diet wise, like they usually eat kind of a broad, varied diet, but they just tend to not overeat. Like there is a reality that folks that, that carry significantly above their slender body mass index usually don't live appreciably long, you know, relative to other populations. So I think, uh, you know, we have sleep, we have like the, the dietary side, which is eat adequate protein. I wouldn't be afraid of the, the protein boogeymen that are, are thrown out there. I would eat in a way that would support good physical activity. And I guess this is the other piece of this longevity puzzle. Get that zone two cardio and do about as much of it as you could possibly get. Like there seems to be. Can you explain what zone two cardio is? Like if people are familiar with the Maffetone pace, like Phil Maffetone, he's a PhD in exercise physiology. It's usually a 180 minus your age, and then you might adjust it a little bit from there. But it's a pace of physical activity that tends to keep us, if you're metabolically healthy, and this can help bring about metabolic health, the activity is like 100% fat fueled. And so whether you're a high carb dieter or lower carb dieter, 
when you exercise, you would still like to get as much of your, your energy derived from fat relative to carbohydrate. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but it's a pace that you could carry on a conversation, but it might be a little bit labored. It's not CrossFit. It's not leaned over, you know, hands on your knees. And, and it's not to say you don't do any of that, but there seems to be this really remarkable benefit from a physiological perspective, like the, that zone two cardio produces increased mitochondrial density. So these powerhouses of energy production, which is one of the things that we lose with aging, we tend to, our mitochondria become damaged and we also tend to get fewer number of mitochondria. And this is again, one of the interesting things about a lower carb ketogenic diet, it tends to increase mitochondrial density and it also creates a selection pressure on the mitochondria. Defective mitochondria tend to die and get replaced by more effective mitochondria under the pressure of, wow. of ketosis. And this fat-driven aerobic exercise tends to do the same thing. And so how many times a week would you be, and for how long would you be wanting to do some zone two training? Anywhere from like 30 minutes to an hour, it seems to be a good good duration. And I, I would just play within that. And then, I mean, if you could do it five to seven days a week, that would be great. It's hard to, to pull off the way that I do that. I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu two to three days a week. And so those are two of my zone two and probably a little bit higher intensity depending on the day, but I get a couple of days with that. And then on other days, I try to do a little bit of cardio in the morning. That's the only time I, I get to watch any TV. I put on a show and I do a uh, like an assault bike and, and just, you know, I wear a heart rate monitor. I use this platform called Morpheus, which tracks HRV and it actually, it'll check my HRV in the morning. It gives me a sense of what my recovery is. And then it gives me a recommended heart rate range to train at for that day. And it's interesting. Like I had a hard cool. jujitsu day yesterday and my, my recovery today, it said I was only like 58% recovered. And I felt pretty good, but when I got in to do my my cardio this morning, it was interesting because my heart rate was 15 beats at 170 watts on the, the Airdyne. My heart rate was about 15 beats higher than what it was the previous day that I did this when I was at like a 98% recovery. So I think it, it, it's pretty solid. Like it gives you a pretty good insight and uh Interestingly, I think people tend to go too hard on that zone two cardio. And with the ubiquity and popularity of CrossFit and like uh, interval training and stuff like that, it's good stuff. But geez, it's super potent medicine. Like it's, it, it, you really want to have the right dose of that stuff, you know? So I'm getting the sense that you just can't do too much zone two cardio, you know, but it's way slower paced than what most people appreciate at least in the beginning. And what's interesting about it though, is that over time, I used to start to dip into anaerobic activity at 170 watts on the Airdyne. I now, like if I'm on a rested day, I'm at about 210 watts and I'm still right. squarely in my, my zone two. So I'm, I'm able, and I've noticed it in jujitsu, like my slow pace is way faster than what it used to be because I've really built up that, that zone two cardio and it increases uh, mitochondrial density. It really improves vascular elasticity. So like the ability for the, the vascular bed to expand and contract, it improves 
laminar flow of blood. So it helps to minimize like cardiovascular complications like atherosclerotic placking. If you have atherosclerotic placking occurring, it still can increase the diameter of your, your tubes so that even if you're, you're getting some encroachment there, you can, in theory, maybe stay ahead of that stuff and help to, to minimize it because so much of atherosclerotic progression is kind of metabolically driven, you know, from bad glucose homeostasis and all these other things. So some good doses on to cardio and then strength training at least twice a week, like a full body strength training thing. And this could be like selectorized weight machines where you go in and you know, you've got a machine that you do 15 reps on bench press and you go nice and slow and easy and kind of burn out the slow twitch muscle fibers. You increase the weight a little bit, do about eight reps, and now you're kind of warmed up and then you go pretty heavy. And maybe you get four or five reps on it and you kind of come down to a light failure and then you move on to a different movement and then a different movement and different movement. So a little warm up and then you know, do it. This is a, a process Art Devaney popularized. He's a evolutionary biology thinker, a PhD in economics is where I learned that that technique from him. But 15 or 20 minutes, full body workout two times a week, amazing return on investment. Because as we begin to age, one of the guaranteed things that we experience, and this is also one of the things that I really push back on the fasting and the protein restriction, the thought there with the protein restriction is the fasting is it might reduce incidence of cancer. It might reduce incidence of, of some of these other things. Maybe I, I'm not convinced that it, it does particularly relative to an active, healthy population. I, I don't know that there's any benefit relative to somebody who's eating well and, and being active. But the other thing is that all of that is a maybe. It might decrease your cancer risk. It might do this. It might do that. It is absolutely, if you're doing protein avoidance and too much fasting, it is guaranteed to worsen sarcopenia, muscle loss, and, and that age-related decline. That is a guarantee. Mm. And what's funny kind of about that is Walter Longo suggests that you should eat a lot of protein as a kid so you grow up big and strong don't eat it hardly any protein during your middle years and then oh shit as you're getting old you better eat protein again because all of the studies that we've looked at is that the people who age the best tend to eat the most protein because they tend to stave off this you know sarcopenia this loss of yeah. muscle mass and i think they're again they're just kind of lost in the mechanistic weeds so four days a week of some strength training i think would be preferable but you know like two days a week of really getting after it uh, full body, you know, training, I think is incredibly beneficial. And then some sort of a dedicated mobility program, whether it's yoga or kin stretch or something like that. Loss of, of external rotation of the hip is a guarantee of a hip replacement at some point. Right. Like it's just like, it's an, if a, then B type thing. And folks have gotten really good at replacing joints when we wear them out, but like, man, wouldn't it be nice to not need to start, you know, replacing joints as we age and that injury potential of like a back injury, a hip injury or something. Those are the things that take people out of their physical activity in such a way that then they're, they're less likely to get back into the fight. And gosh, I, I forget what I was reading, or maybe I was listening to a podcast, but it made the point that 10 days of bed rest will decondition somebody equivalent to 30 years of aging. 
Wow. You are literally 30 years older after 10 days of bed rest than what you are today. Wow, that's insane. Can you get that back? You can get that back. But the interesting thing is you never get all of it back. That 10 days of bed rest cuts some, like if you were really physically fit and then like you, you damage your back because you've been sloppy at doing your mobility work and then you hurt your back and you're like laid up or maybe you need surgery or something like that. Do what you need to do, but just understand that you lost something out of all that. And for some people, they just don't come back from that. Like once you get to the age of 60, 10 days of bed rest, maybe the 10 days that you spend in bed and you don't come back from it because oh, yeah. 30 years of aging, you're, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, like, and it's, yeah, a lot, a lot harder to build muscle and build strength when you're that age as well. Yeah. So oh. this is where that, that little incremental investment, like find a dietary approach that works, really take care of your sleep. Get some zone two cardio. And, you know, I, I have folks that are like, I don't like lifting weights. You know, I do gardening. That's all great. But the thing is, is we are declining at some pace, particularly after the age of 30. And if you don't challenge your body in a way that is novel and forces it to super compensate, your gardening is the same level of activity that you always get. Your yoga is effectively the same level of activity that you always get. And those things will stave off age-related physical decline, but it's not remotely the same as just a 20-minute, twice-a-week investment of a full-body strength training program. Like mm-hmm. It's just completely different planets. A, a 90-year-old who does a modest strength training program can be as physically fit as a 50-year-old who is relatively sedentary. Maybe we can't double lifespan so that we live 150 years, at least not yet. And I don't think any amount of fasting or anything is going to achieve that. But if you are as physically active at 90 as what you were at 50, you basically got a double lifetime. Yep. Yep. I think that's a great way to look at it. Alrighty. As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, Bliss Probiotics is one of our sponsors for this episode. So I thought I'd just let you know a little bit more about what they do, who they are, and and why I think they're so good. So Bliss Probiotics, they help to support your immune system. They're unlike most probiotics that target the gut. Bliss Probiotics specifically target the mouth and the throat, which is, you know, that's essentially, it's the gateway to your body. So they stop the bad bacteria up in the mouth and throat before it gets a chance to get inside you and start making you sick because there are so many things that make you sick these days. There's so many illnesses, there's so many viruses, it's been a long winter. And so I'm always interested to find different ways in which I can help keep myself and my family well. And Bliss Probiotics is one of the things that we do. We take lozenges every day as a preventative measure to support our immunity, keep ourselves healthy. Because at the end of the day, who wants to be sick? I know I don't want to be sick and I don't want a sick family. I don't want sick kids. We just take, uh, take one lozenge a day. They taste delicious. My son loves them. He's always asking for his lozenge in the morning. So take Bliss Probiotics to increase your good bacteria in your mouth and your throat, maintain good health, and protect your family against chills and colds. I also love that they're backed by science and made locally in Dunedin. So if you're interested to learn more, check out the show notes for a direct link to their website, and you can have a look for yourself and learn more and see how you can get yourself some if you're interested. And now, back to the chat. So just with the exercise, so then you've got your zone two cardio, which 
So for me, I, I think another handy tip with that is I try to predominantly nasal breathe when I'm doing zone two cardio. And for me, I find that forces me to go at a lower intensity. And so zone two cardio, you can basically do that on any sort of equipment. You can run, jump on an aerodyne bike, you can row, you can bike, whatever is comfortable for you. Then you've got your strength training, um, like you said. And so, yeah, twice a week, that sounds really cool. Interesting, the the technique or the way that you um, mentioned it. I do kind of something similar, but almost the other way around. So I will do some resistance training. Often I'll do some resistance training and it'll be slow movements. And I will probably spend about 10 to 15 seconds on a full movement. So if I'm doing a bench press, it'll be like, you know, seven seconds down and then seven seconds up. And I will start slow and then just go for as many as I can. And by the end of that set, say I'll be doing it faster than seven seconds down, seven seconds up. It's, you know, because the more fatigued you get, the quicker you, you have to move, basically, I find. And so the idea I've got in my head with that is that I'm, like you said, fatiguing those slow twitch muscle fibers. and then, But also even like moving through to the fast twitch muscle fibers. So you try and fatigue the whole muscle completely. That's largely the way that I would recommend doing it. And mm. like you could use the same load and change the cadence, or you could use lighter loads also going relatively slow and then increase the load while, and trying to increase the, the velocity of the movement at the same time. Yeah, yeah either right. way, it's doing it's doing the same thing as trying to fatigue all of those, mu- the slow twitch and the fast twitch muscle fiber. Yeah, and I, I find that a really good way to go because I'm, Uh, reasonably time poor at the moment just with you know family life kids and stuff and you feel like you've really worked out working to fatigue in that way is um it's really good so you've got that and then you've got your mobility and then what about any sort of high intensity stuff where you're really getting your heart rate right up there is there any benefit to that yeah, there, there definitely is. I've leaned on Peter Atia to some degree for some insights on this. And what I've been doing for that is at the end of maybe two of my zone two cardio sessions, that first block, I want to be as fat fueled as possible. And then at the end of it, like at at minute 40 to 45, 40 to 50, I will do maybe 30 seconds, pretty much as hard as I can. And then a minute and a half to two minutes recovery. And I'll do three or four cycles of that. And so that's what he calls the, the kind of zone five activity and you don't need a lot of that to get a really potent response with it you know and i I think that that's where uh, some crossfit type things tabata type things are really great but it's kind of cherry on the sunday and and for most athletic training like when i used to train people to peak for mma and and jujitsu and stuff like that you save that for the end like you build the cardio base you build the strength base then in the peaking we do a little dusting of that anaerobic threshold stuff to bring them to that peak of performance. And hopefully you get all the timing right and everything comes together, but man, too much of that. And people are, are done. Like they're, they're just burned out and, the, and it's really brutal training. So like it, you want to make it as fun as you can. And usually if you drop a couple of cycles of that in at the end of a zone two, you're feeling pretty good. Like you've got a little bit of that endorphin thing and you're like, I'll just do two cycles of this. And then you're on the second cycle. You're like, oh, I feel pretty good. I'm going to do four of them today, you know? And so you can start getting after it. Whereas uh, too much of that hard, like zone five cardio 
the anaerobic stuff, man, it, it just sucks. Like it's a beatdown, and, and it's hard to recover from it digs a really deep recovery hole. But I think peppering in a little bit of that at the end of a zone two, maybe one session a week, two sessions a week. And, and again, for me, I get a little bit of that from jujitsu. So I, I don't add a bunch of that higher intensity stuff. What, one thing I have started doing is sprints, but only making the sprints about five yards. I forget who I was listening to about this, but they made the case that within sports and athletics, like you almost never sprint more than, you know, maybe three to five seconds, you know, and you think yeah. about like soccer and rugby and all this stuff. And so they made the the case also that you, there was an actual study on it that looked at aerobic and anaerobic adaptations and also sense of fatigue and like the what they did is they matched the total volume of activity so that people that were doing 30 second sprints and the folks that were doing three to five second sprints, they ended up in total doing the same amount of stuff. But the folks that were doing the shorter sprints felt far better. They got a better cardiovascular response, both aerobic and anaerobic adaptations, and they their recovery was better, like just kind of self-reported recovery. They didn't feel as knackered. That would be another good option, like just mm. getting out and, you know, warming up and doing, and I think like doing some change of direction, you know, like sprint forward three to five steps and then split right, split left, doing a little bit of mobility type stuff like that. I, I think that this is one of the things that as we age, we tend not to do Frisbee and soccer and rugby and these things that force us to change directions. And then the one time that we're called upon to do it. Blow a hamstring, or yeah. you, you know, whatever. And I, I think keeping a little bit of that in the mix is really powerful. Mm. Okay, so what about any other lifestyle practices? Or I'm interested in like fringe practices for longevity, like hot and cold therapy or things like that. I think those things are great. So, like adequate sun exposure. People who get enough sun exposure. And this will vary from person to person based off of like skin tone and, and different factors. So it's hard to give like a really prescriptive measure on that. But trying to get the bulk of your vitamin D needs from sun exposure would be kind of the way to, to go with that. And there's an app called D-Minder, which I, I think is free. And it, it cool. will look at your skin tone and it will figure out where you are on the planet and how long you can be out to optimize vitamin D without burning the... Oh, that sounds super handy because it's a big guessing game otherwise, right? It is. Yeah. And since I've been using D-Minder, I, I took my vitamin D status from about 60 nanograms to 80 nanograms on the testing. And I'm less tan, interestingly. So I'm not damaging my skin as much as what I was before, because when it says my time's up, I'm done. And then like, if I'm still wanting to be outside, I'll do a hat, I'll do a long sleeve shirt. And so I've really been staying within the parameters of, of just be out long enough to optimize my vitamin D. And I think it's been working great, but it, there's a fantastic study that looks at people who get adequate sunlight exposure versus what they would consider inadequate sunlight exposure. The difference in health is as it's great in magnitude as a pack a day smoking habit. So if you aren't wow. getting enough sun, it's as damaging to your health relative to getting sun as a pack-a-day smoking habit. And this is stuff that like, I, I feel like the science is really good and it fits well within this evolutionary biology framework. And it also, just for me, if I don't get adequate sun, I'm liable to have a very shortened life because I'm going to hang myself with piano wire. You know, it's like, 
if I end up so depressed from seasonal affective disorder that I hang myself like that, that's not that's not helping my longevity either. So no. I think that's a biggie. I do think there's some fascinating stuff on like the hot and cold exposure. The bugger for me is that, you know, we need to cook our meals. We need to eat our meals. We need to bathe. Hopefully I'm doing some cardio. Maybe I'm lifting some weights. I'm homeschooling my kids. I'm kind of like, okay, when am I going to do like the hot cold deal? It's a full-time job just trying to be healthy. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where for me, I just haven't incorporated that stuff really all that much. I was on a pretty good track of doing a sauna because both of our girls do Brazilian jiu-jitsu also. And the way that their schedule used to be, Nikki and I had time to jam to the gym, do a quick strength session, and then do 15, 20 minutes of sauna. And then we could button up. But their jiu-jitsu classes have changed. And so now we can strength train, can't sauna. And I feel like the zone two cardio is more important than the sauna. Yeah, I, I think many of the benefits of sauna you get from cardio. And I think um, a lot of people like to talk about sauna as a, it's so beneficial because they don't really want to do the cardio. Right. So that could be an either or. Right? Let's say you don't want to do the, the cardio and let's say you could figure out a way of You've got a near infrared lamp and you've also in a hot space. So you're getting like that mitochondrial effect from the near infrared lamp. You were talking yeah. about like some kind of fringy stuff. If you could start dovetailing that. Oh, okay. So here's, I think meditation is huge. I started doing uh, the Ziva meditation, uh, Emily Fletcher, and maybe four or five years ago. And it, it, when I look back at my life, it's up there with like ancestral eating with the the impact it had beneficially on my life, just like stress levels. And it just provides an emotional buffer. So like if something goes sideways, like the kids do something or like something happens in my life where usually there was this immediate like thing happens and then I have this knee jerk response to it. It provides this buffer where I've got a little window of time to look at that and actually choose how I respond and maybe I cycle it up or maybe I, you know, de-escalate or whatever. Whereas before I just had this kind of knee-jerk response that usually, you know, cycle things up and I would get like emotionally, you know, spun up and everything. So that's been huge. So if you could sauna, have a near infrared light on the front, a UV light on the back, and then you could meditate for 15 minutes, you'd be kicking some ass on that. Like if you could rig that up, that, yeah. that would be pretty, pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I um, I sauna um, and I meditate as well, and so, and I do try and meditate in the sauna, but it's very difficult because the sauna is so hot that it's quite uncomfortable, and I feel like I need to be really relaxed to meditate. So, for me, I I find it a bit difficult. Interested in that Ziva meditation though? What is it? A certain style of meditation? It's really simple. I mean, there's this beginning part, what she calls "come to your senses," which you you think about your breath, and then your taste, your hearing, your sight, and then how you feel. And then you have like a mantra, which mine is just one, like one with the, the universe. I don't get anything really fancy with it. And I just really try to, if my mind wanders, I try to bring it back to that just one. You know, I'm one with everything. Try to do that about 15 minutes and it's eerie. Like I'll have a timer running in the background and I'll, I'll be like, I'm there. And I'll pick the thing up and I'm like 14 minutes, 58 seconds. Like it's crazy how on point that thing is. And then at the very end of it, there's a moment of gratitude that I try to think about some things that I'm, I'm grateful for. 
my goodness. When I don't do that, my life sucks so badly that I'm, I, it's literally like I get a, a leather glove to slap myself with, you know, it's like, what are you doing? Like, I could be so damn busy, but that 15 minutes of doing that, I'll tell you, um, like if I have a choice between meditating, cardio, some strength training, I might some days go just to meditation because it is so beneficial for me. I'm such less of a dick when I meditate versus if I don't. And it's like, that's good for my wife. It's good for my kids. It's good for my interaction with the people around me, you know? So that is a biggie. And again, like I've, I think I've been realizing, you know, it's like sauna and there's cold and there's this and that and all of it's really great. Like you said, it's a full-time job, like being healthy now, you know, and and like I have a pretty good uh, schedule in that I work from home and I can shuffle things around. Like I have a good amount of work I need to do, but I'm very flexible in where and when I can do it. Like if you have a, you're a teacher, you're a police officer, you're, you know, even being a parent, like, it, like if you're a stay-at-home parent, you've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Good fucking luck. You know, it's like, when are you going to have those chunks of time, that 15 minutes of somebody not setting themselves on fire, not pooping their pants, not needing immediate attention? Like, yeah. it doesn't happen, you know? So I am mindful that you may need to be really selective depending on what you've got going on to be able to plug those things in. But then that said, you know, with the kids, if you can put one of them in a papoose, a carrier, and another one in a stroller, and uh, you maybe need some extra weight to turn that into zone two cardio, you go do that. And then you're, you're double, you know, when you can get multiple benefits, that pleiotropy out of what you're doing, I get some sunlight on my skin, I get some sunlight on the kids so that when it's time for them to go to bed, they actually go to bed and they don't have disordered circadian biology because they've been indoors all day and they don't really want to go to bed when it's time to go, you know, to, to go down and all that. Like it takes a little bit of ingenuity, but I have pictures of Zoe, my oldest daughter, out in the gym with me doing workouts with me when she was two, you know, and it's not as streamlined an affair, but I took some uh, dog chew toys, the little plastic ring yeah. dog chew toys, and I made gymnastics rings for her so that she could do like body rows and like do her, you know, the foot assisted chin ups and She'd use the ab wheel and different things and she would lose interest pretty quickly, but it allowed me to, to get in and get some movement with her. And then she did a little bit of movement and also it started, she started, Oh, as a family, we work out like that's something we do. Yeah. That's really cool. I go for lots of walks with my kids carrying, sometimes carrying both kids, um, one in the front pack, one in a backpack. It's such a great way to do things. And just the, kind of that, the mentality that I have is life's a gym and, and you know, you'll find a workout anywhere. It's something that I try and do. I try and make my life harder, <laughs> I think, you know, because if you don't have the time, then you've just got to try and figure out how you're going to get your exercise in during the day doing normal activities. Hey, I really want to just touch on Element because I've, so Element is your electrolyte company and product. And I've been using them for about a year or so. And it's awesome. I want to know why you made this company. Like, yeah, what interested you in electrolytes and why'd you get involved? I had no, I mean, five years ago, I was not twisting a mustache thinking, okay, I'm going to create a salt company and, and uh, 
what was happening is I've eaten a low carb diet for the last 23 years and I generally motor along pretty well, but some of the physical activity I do the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu typically is pretty glycolytically dependent. Like it, it tends to do better with a little more carbohydrate and because of gut issues and some autoimmune issues, like I just don't do that well with carbohydrates, you know? And so I was kind of stuck and I, I met these guys who run a program called Keto Games and I started kind of stalking them and asking them questions and I had them look at what I was up to and they were like, your protein, carbs, fat are fine, but you're not getting in enough sodium and electrolytes in general and sodium in particular. And I was like, oh, I salt my food. I'm sure I'm good. And it took me about a year of hanging out with them. And they were like, no, man, like weigh and measure your food, weigh and measure all the electrolytes you take in. And we'd like to see you at at least five grams of sodium per day. And I was at like less than two. And they said, well, try this. Are you working out today? Yes, I am. Okay, take about six ounces of pickle juice and just shoot that down before the workout. I was like, okay. And I went and did it. And it was a strength training workout. And I actually got like a really vascular pump that day. And I just fell on. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, oh, damn, like all of life, everything we do is driven by sodium potassium pumps. Like everything, every thought, every muscle contraction, every nerve impulse is ultimately driven by these sodium potassium pumps. And if you're off a little bit in your electrolyte status, particularly the, the sodium, you're going to feel like garbage and like your performance is going to be really suboptimal. And so these guys have been aware of this, this need for increased electrolytes, specifically in lower carb athletes, but they kind of see it more broadly. And I started digging around and like I, I found the ACSM, American Council of Sports Medicine position on electrolytes. And for folks that exercise high temperature, high humidity, or just high motor and like combination of this stuff, this is assuming folks that are eating a high carb diet, they recommend seven to 10 grams of sodium per day. And I was like, what have I been missing here? You know, because the mainstream medical narrative is that we should be consuming less than two grams of sodium because of the potential that sodium may worsen cardiovascular disease from hypertension. And sodium definitely plays a role in that story. But I, the interesting thing is if one is insulin resistant, we tend to retain sodium, which causes us to retain water. This elevates our blood pressure. And without a doubt, hypertension, high blood pressure is a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Like there is no doubt about that. But what's wacky about that is that low sodium diets don't fix that problem. Like it doesn't really reduce blood pressure. It brings it down a little bit, but it's not that, that big of a, a delta because if we don't eat a lot of sodium, but we are insulin resistant, we just pull sodium out of our skeleton. And when we pull it out of the bones, we also pull calcium out of the bones. So there's a really high correlation between osteoporosis and insulin resistance. And it's probably because oh, we're, wow. we're pulling sodium out of the bones. And so there was all this information that, that kind of hit me at once. And, and in a low carb environment, we tend to retain less sodium. There's this process called the diuresis of fasting, where we dump more sodium in a low carb environment or in a fasted environment. So our insulin levels, when they're low, we make less of a hormone called aldosterone and aldosterone is one of the primary drivers of sodium retention. So 
low carb environments, you need more sodium, high physical activity, you need more sodium, high heat, you need more sodium. So all these different factors that go into that. So these guys that, that founded Keto Gains, they put this on my radar. And when I became aware of this, I looked at the community that I serve. And I was like, oh my God, like 90% of the problems that people have may be sodium and electrolyte driven. So we put together this free downloadable guide about how to mix your own electrolyte beverage. And we called it Keto Aid. And it was like this much table salt, this much potassium chloride, this much magnesium citrate, uh, lemon juice, stevia, water, shake it up and go. This much pickle man, juice. You know, or pickle juice. Pickle <laughs> juice was the, the other recommendation on there. And man, it was crazy. We posted this thing for free. It wasn't a lead magnet. Like we were super unsophisticated with it. In six months, we had a half million downloads of this thing. Like wow. it was crazy. And people were tagging us on social media. They're like, can't thank you enough for the keto aid thing. Like this has been a complete game changer. But I got to say, when I travel with three bags of white powder, like the TSA doesn't like that, you know? And, and so then a lot of people started asking us, could you do some sort of like a ready to drink, you know, mix it up yourself thing? And we started looking in, in, into it. And I was like, yeah. And it, but I was like, does the world really need another electrolyte product? But what was what was really weird about that is when I looked at what the way that I would formulate it, it would be really heavy in sodium, have some potassium, some magnesium. And this based off of what I feel like folks are generally missing in their diet and what they really need to to plug the, the holes of a, an otherwise well-composed whole food diet. But if you're high activity, high physical activity, or, you know, a, a high heat environment or whatnot, these are going to be the things that you're really still going to be deficient in. And so that's what informed the creation of Element was recognizing my need, taking that realization, recognizing that I've probably been failing my community and in, in talking about electrolytes and sodium in particular for 20 years. And then when we when we made it available in this free format about how to mix your own stuff, like it just went like wildfire. And then people started asking us for a product. So like that, that's the whole. And I think that Element is one of the fastest growing health and wellness brands in the world right now. Like it's crazy. It is absolutely going to the moon and it's just fucking salt and we still have our how to how to make it your own like if you don't want to buy it that's great here's the how to make it your own and we keep adding more make it your own recipes because the only magic with element is it tastes really good and it's super convenient like I, there's no magic stories about you know magical mineral ratios or anything it's sodium potassium magnesium that's it and it tastes good and it's it's easy to mix up and it's super portable and everything so it's been kind of cool in that I don't need to spin any like mystical stories about magical minerals or anything. It's like, hey, make it your own, buy ours, buy someone else's, but just like get your electrolytes on point, drink pickle juice, you know? And, and <laughs> so it's been an interesting spot to be in because we can just kind of lean into making a good product and then helping to educate people about electrolytes, but also it really is kind of a Trojan horse for beginning the conversation around good nutrition and lifestyle. Electrolytes are kind of a multi-denominational topic. Like everybody needs them, um, regardless if you're paleo, if you're vegan, you know, any of these different things. 
But once we start talking about electrolytes and we can have conversations around more effective nutrition, like we've written a lot of stuff at Element about fasting because people want to know about, well, does this break a fast? And I'm like, is that even the question to ask? Does breaking a fast even matter? Why are you even fasting? What is the perception of benefit there? Well, I'm suppressing mTOR. Do you want to suppress mTOR? So it's it's been this opportunity to actually have these really bigger, more meaningful conversations around health and wellness. And we've been sneaking in about regenerative ag and like my, my sacred cow work and stuff like yeah. that. So if this thing only is hugely successful selling salt, I'll look at it as a failure. Like I really, I really see this as kind of the skinny end of the wedge to open the door to have bigger conversations around whole food, nutrient-dense diets, sleep, circadian biology, sustainable agriculture. Like that's really the goal is using electrolytes as kind of a, a safe topic to start having a conversation around. It's like, oh, you feel better with that? Great. Now let's talk about some of this other stuff. Yeah, that's cool. I really like that. Is there any way you can over-consume electrolytes? Absolutely. And generally for most people, the problem is going to be disaster pants. Like you're going to be doing a hundred yard sprint to the loo and that's going to be like the problem. Um, the about 1% of the population is what we would call a sodium sensitive hyper responder where they get a really marked blood pressure increase with a, a high sodium meal. But the interesting thing about that is if it's almost universally driven by insulin resistance. So those people usually need diet and lifestyle modification to improve their situation because a high sodium meal will worsen their situation, but they still have the problem. They're usually low-grade hypertensive all the time. And like if they go out for Mexican food or Chinese food or do something like an element, it will raise their blood pressure in an unfavorable way but it was already elevated in an unfavorable way, just not as, as much magnitude. So if someone is insulin resistant and hypertensive, they definitely don't need something like Element, but they do need to modify diet and lifestyle. And then the interesting thing is when we become insulin sensitive and we're losing more sodium, then you're probably going to have to do a little bit more diligence towards topping it off, whether it's pickle juice or, you know, whatever you end up doing. Yeah. Salt. That's brilliant, man. Um, well, that rounds off our, our conversation today. We've, we're running out of time. So I just want to say thanks so much, man. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate everything you do. And it was a pleasure having this conversation. And I um, hopefully we get to do it again another time. Anytime you want me to bring down property values, I will do it. it, it you, you're the one that woke up at 3 a.m. local time. So like, I, I will accommodate you any way that I can. <laughs> thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. And just briefly, Rob and his team at Element have very kindly provided all of our listeners with a special deal. So if you're interested to check out Element, the electrolytes, then you can head along to www.drinkelement.com forward slash well and good. So that's drink, L-M-N-T, the letters L-M-N-T, dot com forward slash well and good and check out that deal. I can definitely recommend the mango chili flavor, the chocolate flavor, and the lemon lime flavor, just FYI. Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum, tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. 
it really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye.